I suggest that we can prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary. As Christians, we do not give up our intellect. The strongest evidence and argument for the existence of God is that without a belief in God, you can't prove anything. How can the law be material? That's the question I'm going to ask you. I would say no. And can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Welcome to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and here at Revealed Apologetics, Our goal is to equip believers to defend the Christian faith, and we want to equip you to do it in a way that is honoring to God and faithful to Scripture. So sit back, relax, get your thinking caps on, and let's dive into our topic for today. All right. Uh, welcome to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. Today I have a guest, a friend of mine. His name is Matt Yester. He is. Um, would you identify yourself as like an online apologist, a lay apologist, or just an apologist? <laughs> Both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. Apologist, like doing online dialogues and stuff like that. And how about uh, yeah, Matt? Like on the Carm Discord, we got a Discord out there for people to check out. Yeah. Uh, they can find links to that, I think, on the CARB website, and uh, we have really good, uh, fruitful conversations there, doing some teachings and stuff like that. Okay. It's just theology right now, so uh, just start getting started on that, so uh, I think a lot of people are interested in that. So, right. But yeah, uh, just uh, conversing with a lot of a lot of different uh, a lot of different people and um, over like a decade, so yeah. yeah, 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 and you, um, you do presuppositional apologetics, that's a methodology that you adhere to, yep, yep, okay. yeah, it wasn't all, but um, you know, was uh, very intrigued with the creation evolution debate, uh, very, mm-hmm. very early on, and um, boy, once I became reformed, then things really changed there, it was a whole paradigm shift, so okay. All right. Um, and uh, so I, I've, I've been doing apologetics for a really long time. I grew up in church, so um, and I always I always enjoyed theology. My family we always sat around arguing about something. You know, <laughs> I grew up in a I grew up in a Pentecostal church. So the arguments were usually, why can't we do this or why is this wrong or why is it a sin to do this? It was very kind of a very uh, sometimes it came across kind of like a very legalistic context. So we would argue about like, can Christians drink wine or like. What's wrong if I pierce my ear? You know, like stuff like that. Um, but we often went into some deep stuff, and and I always was geared towards like those kinds of discussions. So later on in life, apologetics was something that was an easy move to to make in terms of being my focus. Now, people who know my story, there's a broader story there that I don't want to get into. 
Um, but I, too, uh, am a presuppositional apologist. I think it is a the, the biblical model for defending the faith. And it is a an apologetic methodology, as you said before we started recording, um, that flows from our theology. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to ask this question and hear what you say in a little bit. But um, as Calvinists, you and I are Calvinists, we would we would probably make the argument that our presuppositional methodology flows from a very distinctly reformed perspective. And um, some people who look at presuppositionalism from far away don't see it as a necessary aspect. Like, hey, I can use tag uh, and I'm not a Calvinist. And so well, hopefully we can talk about that in, later on. But that's not, that's a, an interesting point that some people might be interested in hearing about. So for for people who are kind of like listening to this and saying like, okay, presuppositional apologetics, I think I know a little bit about it because I've I've seen someone like Saiten Bruggenkate online, or I've maybe listened to a, a Bonson debate or something, but I'm unclear on some stuff. How would you define presuppositional apologetics to the person who's never, you know, has never heard of presuppositional apologetics? Well, <clears throat> A presupposition is a basic uh, fundamental assumption or a basic uh, starting point. It could be, you know, a lot of people lay out, you know, they have, they're not even aware that they have presuppositions unless mm. pressed on it. They go, oh, oh, I do have these underlying beliefs that then undergird everything else that, you know, flows out of them in uh, a network. <clears throat> As Bonson, you know, lays out what a worldview is, a very succinct definition. The worldview is a network of presuppositions by which everything else, and they're not proven by the means of natural science, they're that by which even science is employed, and they're not demonstrated on that means, but they're that by which everything else is interpreted and interrelated. It's a system, it's a worldview system. Uh, therefore, it's not one thing in isolation from one another. These things, uh, these beliefs come in clusters. But ultimately, because you'll have a lot of uh, atheists, just non-believers, you know, when even or agnostics, or whatever. Let's say, well, I believe this, I believe this, I believe that, and I just got a plethora of like fundamental, uh, properly basic beliefs. Okay, so you have a plethora, you know, you have a many, but what unifies them? You know, you gotta, you <laughs> otherwise you have no unity between them. There's no coherence between them. But if you want to search for unity and plurality, now we press the issue a little further. In the nature of the case, there's only one. I'm going to use a fanciful term here, transcendental ultimate. So it's an argument from the location of ultimacy to everything else we experience as mm-hmm. a precondition for our experience. So so you would say a, a presupposition is an elementary assumption that is not itself validated by empirical means uh, or anything like that. We do not appeal to something more fundamental than the presupposition to validate the presupposition. They're our starting point. Would that be right? Right. And to prove it transcendentally, and you do uh, demonstrate that by the impossibility of the contrary, it's a transcendental argument. Because if you, you, ha- if you have the truth, let's say the worldview has the truth, and I know other people think Christian is false, whatever, but if someone does have the truth, how would they prove it to you? How do they mm-hmm. prove that you have the truth? Well, you got to show, you know, just uh, ontological, epistemological, and ethical necessity. Um, that's what we argue from uh, the Christian God, because, you know, Jesus mm-hmm. is the truth and the life only comes from the Father, but through him. And uh, all the treasure, wisdom, and the knowledge are hidden in him. Uh, mm-hmm. He created all things. So from the strict, stringent worldview of uh, biblical Christianity, we can't argue outside of that on any mm-hmm. new fashion. So because the, the unbeliever can read the Bible, too, and they can see if someone's wavering from that. They go, well, here it says Jesus Christ created all things, all the treasure, wisdom, and knowledge hidden in him. 
you know, uh, yeah, yeah, you can't you can't waver on that too much before they just kind of call you out on that. So you yeah. have to have uh, uh, distinct and consistent uh, apologetic. Yeah. Now, now, like what you said before, where when we do a presuppositional apologetics, we are not uh, our worldviews come in or our beliefs rather come in clusters. So we start with like a system. We don't argue for the truth of the Christian worldview, as as Cornelius Van Til said, and those who um, kind of know the conversation we're having, at least they're somewhat familiar with it. They will know uh, Van Til is a very prominent figure when we talk about issues of presuppositionalism. He said that we do not argue in a block-by-block block fashion. Uh, maybe you can unpack that for people um, and, and explain what it means for the presuppositionalist not to argue block-by-block block and why we must argue system versus system. Christian system of thought, the Christian worldview versus the non-Christian worldview. Can you unpack that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, when you talk about a system and a cluster of beliefs, you just can't think about one thing, one thing only, without other concepts and other things being uh, associated with that, such as a system with just basic the three branches of philosophy. That's what we lay out as a worldview mm-hmm. of uh, metaphysics or ontology, the very nature and essence of reality, the things in reality, different types of ontologies, distinctives between the two. How do you get knowledge from that ontological grounding? Um, and you, once again, you can't talk about one without the other being brought in because you're making sure. knowledge about ontology, yet your ontology has to ground how you know things. So these things are automatically reciprocal mm-hmm. in a reciprocal relationship. So you can't divorce one from the other and just look at, I just want to talk about ontology in a vacuum. Impossible. I just want to talk about epistemology in a vacuum. Impossible. I just want to talk about ethics in a vacuum. They're all. Well, 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 Matt, what if someone says, well, I believe in logic, you believe in logic. Why don't we just start there? So I assume logic, you use logic, let's argue logically to the truth of our conclusion. What, what's wrong with, with that? Well, they think it's uh, epistemically neutral, uh, but that's a con game. Uh, that, that's uh, God's logic, and we have to think his thoughts after him. Um, that's the only way we have the capacity to do that, because that's part of our worldview. Um, and that's the only way we can actually utilize it, because we reflect his thinking. They think it's just some abstract uh, ethereal notion somehow derived from the material universe or whatever they want to posit that. If they ground that as the ground of all reality, then how from pure abstraction did you get um, a physical universe? So, so, so are you saying that um, the unbeliever often assumes that logic, the laws of logic, are the common ground between us? So is, isn't, are, isn't that kind of a neutral ground between me, the unbeliever, and you, the, the Christian? I mean, we, we both use logic. Why can't we? Why can't we just start there? Is there what's wrong with right. that? Let me use an analogy, and you know what my favorite analogy is. All right, got a piece of paper here. <laughs> okay, right here. You can, if you have one right in front of you, just picture it in your mind. Just think conceptually about it. Got a piece of paper here, uh, yeah, with uh, horizontal lines. Just draw a line down the middle of it here. We're gonna split it in half. Put the Christian on one side, put the unbeliever you're talking about from any worldview system on the other side. Now, that middle line represents an antithesis between the two worldviews. In principle, they don't agree on anything. Because okay, they- okay. I know what antithesis is. So before oh, you sure. continue there, why don't you explain, uh, explain to people what, what you mean by the middle line of the page. Sure. One side of the page is the Christian worldview. The other, yeah. line of the, the other side of the page is the non-Christian worldview. And you said this line down the middle is the antithesis between them. What, what do you mean by that? Sure. 
Well, when Christian's laying out his worldview, <clears throat> you know, he laid out his uh, metaphysics, his epistemology, his ethic, and categories within that, and his whole worldview system as a whole, the whole Christian worldview system. It's the whole house built. That's what we start with. Mm-hmm. The unbeliever wants to put his on the other side, or a few bricks, maybe, that he might assert. But they're in direct contradiction systematically as a whole to the Christian worldview. Now, mm-hmm. say they got those bricks from our side of the page, and we, that's the point of the demonstration to show that they want to assert these bricks on their side of the page. You know, logic, uniformity of nature, maybe some moral absolutes, something like that, or just you're morally indignant about something. Uh, <clears throat> and um, uh, we show that they got those bricks from the other side, and they don't even really have a, a right to even assert those because they don't make systematic cogent sense in their worldview when pressed to the location of ultimacy. Because mm-hmm. they, is plurality is the ultimate, and it's got to be necessarily one. They can't uh, ground that, then they're making baseless assertions anyway. They're not grounded in anything in, in, in systematic cogency. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost like a one of the sort of plurality of like foundationalism just isolated little bricks but i go but you automatically assume that there's a relationship between what uh, you know ontology logic morality things like that they, they know there's a tie that binds but i go what is that tie that binds them together mm-hmm. you don't have it then you got these things that are radically disjuncted from each other so the christians laying out his thesis the opponent lays out his antithesis he's the opposite of what the worldview is asserting it's held on totally different grounds even though we'll say i assert logic he asserts logic but the foundation is absolutely radically different so would you so would you lay out on the side of the page so you have the christian worldview on one side of the page you have um and i think i remember you you telling me this before in a, in a, in a other in a different conversation you have the christian on the one side of the page the non-christian on the other side of the page and you have this line of antithesis dividing the two and say you both assert logic uh-huh. So you put logic on the top of the page. Down so the this list. item of mm-hmm. human experience is up for debate. And then you ask the question, this is why I like the paper analogy, mm-hmm. which side of the page can account and ground the specific item of human experience, whether it be logic, whether it be science, whether it be history, whether it be philosophy. And mm-hmm. then that's when you argue system versus system. Which system can couch and make intelligible the specific item of human experience is that how you would go about it right yeah that would be uh just, just symbolic logic it would be any p let's just call it p t equals any intelligible experience that the person does not doubt from either mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. that's just i can't doubt that 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 exists and i think i have the transcendental grounding for it so i go mm-hmm. good now we can have debate we've both got a worldview laid out it's called q so christian laid out his q so, so we got the um, Christian worldview laid out, whole side of the page filled up. You fill it up, all the biblical data, revelational knowledge, stuff like that, and revelational epistemology. Um, and then uh, the unbeliever is going to bring his uh, particular worldview. Not all atheists are alike. Uh, they can hold different schools of philosophy, rationalism, empiricism, uh, pragmatism. You know, uh, they'll they'll throw out all kind of wonky stuff. They're not all uh, you know cookie cutter. You know, atheists are not all, all empiricists or strict empiricists like Hume was or something like mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. you're getting nuances there. So that's why it's good that if you're at least picturing in your mind, if you're in like an audio debate or having a front face-to-face dialogue, you're doing it in your mind. You're picturing it, you know. 
good. You just viewing it as, you know, two sides of the page and dialectical tension with one another. And, um, you know, you're doing in, well, we can get to the internal critique there though. And external, not to do an ex external critique, but to do an internal critique, which is valid, but to keep that focus on there. So you can catch when someone tries to make an external critique and to keep you from doing it as well. So, so, so what's the difference between, uh, again, people who need to understand this is vitally important. Yeah. Because a presuppositional method is a worldview apologetic, where notice that there's nothing we've said that has appealed to specific evidences in favor of one view over the other. We have not appealed to, look, there's design, although that has its place. We haven't appealed to an uncaused cause of the universe, which has its place. Why don't we, in the presuppositional method, appeal to some of the arguments that we're familiar with when we read a book on apologetics, like the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the moral argument, the argument from religious experience, arguments for the, the historical um, reality of the resurrection of Christ, all have their place and presuppositionalists can use them. Why don't we appeal to them um, as directly as, say, uh, those who hold to a more classical apologetical approach? Well, the way Boss laid out, <clears throat> when he's laying out different types of proof, you put in four classes. You put, you know, you can have pragmatic proof, empirical proof, rationalistic proof, transcendental proof. Now, the only, those first three only make sense within the transcendental framework because that is the overarching, because it's an ultimate argument. That's the problem. I mean, that's the thing that people need to grasp. It's, a, it's, a, it's an ultimate argument, especially arguing for God's existence as well and uh, demonstrating that. Um, that, 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 that would take precedence there because that is the framework by which even rationalistic deduction and empirical induction would even be intelligible. Mm -hmm. so, so, so the transcendental argument for God's existence is usually not laid out in some of these traditional formulations. Uh, say, for example, you take something like the cosmological argument, which is, um, or the Kalam cosmological argument, which is typically laid out in a deductive form. So whatever begins to exist, has a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. So you have two premises that, if true, lead to a conclusion. Yeah. What you're saying is that a transcendental argument is so ultimate, it is trying to, it's not trying to prove God's existence by laying out premises, rather it's trying to show that the Christian system itself is the necessary precondition for deductive arguments themselves. For even syllogisms. For even, for even syllogisms. Syllog they utilize we're saying what even grounds that right so so and so the way the transcendental argument has been formulated uh popularly especially by someone like greg bonson the proof for the truth of the christian worldview is that if it were not true you couldn't prove anything at all is that that's the idea wrapped up in what you just said right that the christian worldview is the precondition for even proof correct how's proof intelligible and that's what right standard of proof would we uh, lean upon there. So he's going, transcendental proof is the ultimate. Now, right. the other things are very mitigated because, uh, you know, in the history of philosophy, when you really get the crux of things, you know, in Kant, he's at the rationalistic empirical divide. You know, they, those guys have been uh, uh, with each other for quite a while there before Kant. They both led to skepticism. He's got to try and meld, well, what? You know, he's the first one to use a form of a transcendental argument, strictly epistemological. He had no ontological grounding for anything. It was, it was a metaphysical agnostic when it came to the noumenal realm. It was just, he divided metaphysics up into two categories. The noumena, couldn't know anything about. You can only deal with the phenomena you experience, sense perception. And that the mind is active and imposes, you know, uh, 
uh, time and space predicates and even inserts causation, causal principles, stuff like that, even though it may not exist in reality, but the mind just has to think that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just thinking on strictly epistemological mind grounds here, just saying the mind has to think this way. But he didn't prove all minds have to think that way. He just proved that his mind has to think that way. Um, but he was at the crossroads there of saying, well, <laughs> uh, rationalists, you know, when they have these innate ideas, they were just axiomatic, but the problem there that led to theoretically three, you know, listen, we use a pretty popular one, Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz. He just said, we take the rationalist perspective. These are just self-evident truths and eight ideas. And we got radically three different metaphysics. One's a dualist, the other one's a monist. Uh, you know, dualist holds that there's two aspects of reality. There's two types of ontology. Monist believes there's only one essence or one ontology. And then Leibniz was an absolute pluralist. <laughs> Uh, so who's right? That leads to skepticism. David Hume drove empiricism into skepticism, uh, you know, well before Kant there, and that awoken Kant from his dogmatic slumbers, as he said, mm-hmm. and thought, ooh, we've got to save rationality here. We've got to save objectivity. He didn't actually accomplish his job because he ended up subjectivizing all science because everyone's just got to deal with the phenomena, sense experience being taken in. Yeah. What he's trying to answer was, since... The, the rationalist deductive methodology led to uh, skepticism, and then the empirical approach. Hume drove that into the ground. That leads to skepticism. But he's saying, well, they had their they had their place. How is they even intelligible? Even the, the place they actually have intelligibility. Mm-hmm. What what epistemology can ground, or what is uh, uh, transcendental to these methodologies being employed? You can't call them epistemologies because as epistemologies, they falter. You have to have an epistemology by which these certain methods, which are mitigated and very, um, let's say, uh, they only they just have their limitations. Mm-hmm. So wide in scope, they're not the ultimate broad reaching, can answer everything, but they have their place on certain issues. Well, okay, what epistemology can ground these different methodologies? Now, I take that even as a Christian approach from our revelational epistemology, we can't account for deduction and induction. From a worldview, but those are methods being employed. They're not epistemologies. Our, our epistemologies are revelational, very ground for our, our knowledge being created in the modern day. But mm. therefore, we can employ a certain methods, but we don't want to call them epistemologies. They're not a right. holistic theory of knowledge. They're just they have application at certain uh, points in, in in the realm of experience. Let, let's back up for two seconds. For uh, again, I anticipated this discussion to be at the more higher level, which I'm glad we're talking about these things because I know that people who are familiar with the methodology and want to go a little deeper, this is going to be helpful. But just to throw a bone at mm-hmm. the um, at the person who's kind of like, man, I, I subscribed to your podcast. This one's different than the other ones, you know. Over yeah. um, now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, let's define our terms. When we talk about a worldview, um, we're talking about um, a network of presuppositions, a network of assumptions in terms of which all of reality is interpreted. They are, they are our intellectual glasses through which we filter the world and we interpret the world through these lenses. That's our worldview. Worldviews are generally composed of three foundations. Um, people have categorized them differently, but I'm going to use the three uh, basic foundations of every worldview. So I'm just defining the basics and then we'll return back to our discussion. Um, mm-hmm. Worldviews are made up of metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Now, uh, Matt has been using the, the term metaphysics, and he, he, even, uh, um, he even described the philosopher Immanuel Kant as a metaphysical agnostic. And so that terminology can be a mouthful and give someone a stroke as they're listening. Um, but 
Metaphysics, <laughs> metaphysics simply, quite simply, it's a, it's a scary word that has a very simple meaning. Metaphysics asks the question, what is real? What is the nature of reality? Epistemology asks the question, how do we know what we know? How do we know anything about anything? Okay. And ethics deals with how we should live our lives, right? Right and wrong, these sorts of things. Okay. Now, this is important to presuppositional apologetics because every claim that someone makes presupposes metaphysics that reality is a certain way and epistemology that we could know the truth about reality <laughs> or how we come to know what we think we know. That's right. And so um, when we're talking about using a presuppositional method and saying, for example, when we popularly formulated the argument that the proof for the, for the truth of the Christian worldview is that if it were not true, you couldn't prove anything at all. What we're saying, if we're using this worldview language of metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics, what we're saying is that unless the metaphysic, the theory of reality, unless reality is what the Bible says it is, then a person couldn't know anything. Their epistemology wouldn't work because their epistemology is not coherently connected to a broader theory of reality out of which the things we claim to know would even make sense. And so that's why it's important to understand these foundations. So when Matt um, uh, referred to Immanuel Kant as being a metaphysical agnostic, basically Immanuel Kant um, was agnostic. He says, I don't know the nature of reality, uh, the metaphysics. I don't know that. Because it's the, uh, the ding on Zick. It's uh, you could not know the thing in and of itself. That's right. The, the phenomenal. Uh, right. Couldn't now, when it would. Now, without refuting Kant, because re Kant can be easily uh, refuted, if you grant that, those premises, then there's trouble uh, for Kant. We won't go there. But I think it's important to lay that groundwork to understand what a worldview is, what it consists of, metaphysics, epistemology, or ethics. And if we don't want to use those words, worldview consists of a theory of what you think reality is, a theory of how we come to know what we know, and a theory of how we should live our lives. Everybody whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, a pragmatist, everyone has a view on those things, whether they acknowledge it or not. Presuppositionalist wants to show that whatever the unbelievers, metaphysic, epistemology, or ethic, do they hold it together in a consistent way? And can it ground the particular instances of human experience? Right? So simple there with three categories, which are just branches of philosophy. Now, some right. people focus on one branch of philosophy and that's their whole life you know that some people dedicate philosophers you have one they're in epistemology they got one little mitigated theory or whatever they're not doing it in a holistic systematic fashion like the grand philosophers were doing but let's you know okay we lay out three points there now let's take a little bit more broad with the same three-point system now let's go to a four point in that uh worldview it also has to answer the meta-narrative Something I learned from John Frame, he lays it down in his History of Western Philosophy, that all the worldviews, you got to answer some more questions as well. Not only about those categories, but four more as well. Nature of origins, why man has problems in this world, what's his solutions, and where are things going? Now that's the from the secular view, I use secular terms there. From the Christian perspective, we talk about the, the doctrines of creation, fall, redemption, consummation of all things. To the other worldviews got their views of these things too. Not only of just metaphysics, epistemology and ethics, but the whole course of history that lays out a meta-narrative that's over top of that, you know, the stringent three categories there we laid out. 
So that's even something more broad to bring it more broad in scope of saying it gets more involved here because these sorts of issues are going to come up in dialogue. You can think about the, you know, three points and then four points. Just remember that three points, three point worldview, four point meta narrative, origin, nature of origins, uh, our doctrine of creation. That's what the Christian's going to argue from the fall. Well, they, uh, the person's going to say, well, why are there problems in this world? The world is not ideal. There's problems. People are disagreeing. We're debating. There's bad things going on. Why? They have to account for these things. Christian, fall. Sinful nature of man. You know, uh, <clears throat> we're in sinful rebound against God. Redemption. Uh, the, you know, from secular viewpoint, uh, well, from Christian viewpoint, obviously the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ, um, you know, saves us from our sins. Is death, burial, resurrection, you know, things like that we bring up. But from the Arab worldviews, you know, just take pick an atheist or something. You go, well, someone like Plato or some of these philosophers, Plato, Hegel, that really put the philosopher on the pedestal. Well, obviously, the philosopher's got to be the philosopher king. People just need to be educated. We'll solve the problems. You know, just education will just solve the problem. You know, but where would be that education stemming from? Um, and that can be internally critiqued as well. And then where are things going? The final consummation of all things. Um, See, what I like about that, what you just said right there, mm -hmm. uh, the Greeks, Aristotle, right? What, um, oh, yeah. Plato, how do you fix this problem? Education. But you see, now you get to the foundation. Well, education presupposes a foundation out of which that education is coming from. And mm -hmm. so the presuppositionalist is going to do well to not argue about, well, this form of education is better. Well, that form of education is better. We go straight to the foundation. What worldview are you standing on when you promote a specific education that you think is the remedy for man's problems? Yeah. And, and if it comes out of a worldview that's incoherent and cannot ground itself, cannot stand, then that worldview is not sufficient to answer man's problems. White blood of the system pumping into the system, we go right for the jugular. That's what right. Well, where is it pumping from? You know, where's it? <laughs> where's this lifeblood coming from? Well, okay, that order. So the presupposition goes right from the jugular. That's what your main focus is. Look for the underlying presuppositions of people's assertions. Mm -hmm. Say, well, why would they assert that? Well, okay, fundamentally, it's not just one assertion in a vacuum. We already know there's right. a system around it. There's in other interpretations of uh, other things and other things that are unstated premises that need to be, you know, laid out. Well, I mean. I want to get back to the first point you brought up. When you're laying out the worldview or the two sides of the page, I like your phrase, showing your cards, mm -hmm. <laughs> show mm -hmm. your hand. <laughs> we show our hand and the opponent shows theirs and say, all right, now let's, let's, let's tussle. Um, you know, we'll see which one has a royal flush. You know, um, just that's pretty much the meat of the, uh, meat of the argument there, just to use an analogy. But, you know, you got to lay it out. And the Christian is very forthright in just laying out our worldview. We say, all right, what do you have to contest against this? Um, and not only do you have to have something substantial from your own view, but you also have to internally demolish your opponent, which we mm -hmm. can do from our side too. We ours can stand in with uh, stand an internal critique, um, as long as we're not straw man and stuff like that. But that's usually you know uh, tossed aside anyway because straw man's aren't really attacking us. Um, but then we can just deal with the cards that they've been laying out and say, all right, let's make some systematic cogent sense out of it. Can't. I don't see how you have a, a cogent systematic worldview. It just mm. has leaps, gaps, and uh, you just don't have systematic cogency. So that's what we're also looking for as well. Systematic mm. cogency and the also ontological 
well, ontological, metaphysical, and ethical grounding for these things. And that's got to be the location of ultimacy, which a lot of people would uh, just assert is, well, I, there has to be a ground of all being. There has to be, maybe they would assert there's absolute truth. Maybe we can't know. Maybe no one can know, but there there has to be it. But they get this big, you know, circle with a question mark inside of it. That's where the Christian is like, well, we know that. We know what that is. We know it's the ontological trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, one being, three persons. I created the world and all things in them and uh, created us in his image. We're going to bear that image. So we got we got an answer from there. We're arguing from the transcendental henceforth. They're arguing from things they experience, trying to go, well, the transcendental is kind of mythical. Right, right. When you start with your own finite self, there's no way to make the leap to understand the nature of the metaphysic, the nature of reality. Now, uh, the unbeliever or, or whoever might disagree with the Christian's conception of reality. But if the Christian worldview is true, then it makes sense that we can know the nature of reality because the metaphysic, the only way that, that one could know the metaphysic is that they know it comprehensively and there's one within our worldview that does. Mm -hmm. Christianity is a revelatory religion so that we could not know the nature of reality unless the one who knows all things tells us. Now, mm -hmm. the unbeliever doesn't have to believe that. But it makes sense within our system, on our side of the page, as you, if, you will, if you will, it makes sense for us to say we can know the nature of reality because God has revealed it. That doesn't mean we know everything, but we know the metaphysical context in which the discussion can even make sense, which we call, uh, you know, the foundation of, of, the, of reality, what we would call the ontological trinity. The triune God is the metaphysical context in which everything within human experience, human beings themselves and everything actually mm -hmm. makes sense to begin with. All right. Um, okay, so we hit the half hour mark. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. I don't know how much space is on my phone. So if we record this and and it's really long, I don't want to be un to unable to record it. So we're going to keep going. We, we still have plenty of time. Okay. But I want to shift gears um, and um, ask you some questions in regards to common misconceptions about the presuppositional method. Now, of course, we've been all over the place, which is what I wanted. I wanted a kind of a free-flowing conversation. But I actually have someone, um, I told people, because I'm going to be interviewing Chris Bolt from Choosing Hats on Saturday. I've talked to him a few times uh, on, on Discord. Uh, yeah, yep. Here. <laughs> I'm sorry? I, I think I talked to him, I think I ran into him on Discord uh, maybe earlier in the year or something like that. I had a quick thing where I just laid out the tag and go, oh yeah, we just have the, you know, the way I like to lay it out there. I said, yeah, it's just before we got you on the contrary. You know, right, so right. So I'm going to be talking to him on Saturday. Um, and so I asked people if they had any questions to send me some questions. Now, so far, I only just have a couple, but I want I wanted to take to, for you to have the opportunity to answer some of these, um, which I think which I think are, are great. I think this person is a Christian. And so I shared the post that I was going to ha have an interview and discussion on presuppositional apologetics with, with Chris Bolt. And of course I shared it in a group where people, no one there is a, is a presup, you know, they, they're kind of the classical guys and they all think presup is bunk. So, um, I figured let's tackle some of the common misconceptions to show that even if they don't hold to this presup methodology, there are answers to what they think are, you know, these insurmountable issues that presup methodology can't address. Okay. So, uh, question number one, and I think this is an important question. Is there an example in scripture of presuppositional apologetics being done? By presuppositional, I mean assuming and not arguing for, <laughs> there goes the fallacy there, the truth of scripture and of God's existence. Okay, 
I'm not done with the question, but look at the faulty assumption. The faulty assumption is that presuppositionalists don't argue. We just assert. <laughs> well, there's a problem there. So, so is there an example in scripture of presuppositional apologetics being done by presuppositional, I mean, assuming and not arguing for the truth of scripture and of God's existence? Because I see many times where God himself points to the work he has done in the world as evidence that he should be worshipped. Jesus points to the signs he performs. He doesn't just say, believe the Old Testament. Okay, why don't you address the faulty assumptions in the question, but then charitably answer the question in terms of, well, are there examples of, of the biblical, a biblical use of a presuppositional methodology? Yeah, the, I think the classicist locus there for that would be uh, Acts 17, called the uh, challenge in the Greeks at uh, Athens, and also before the Areopagus, um, where he's uh, spurned by their older idolatry and has the... the indwelling there to preach to them and call them out on their idolatry and say the God that created the universe and created all things that exist and is not dependent upon anything does not dwell in temples made with hands. You have this all the unknown God. It was, you know, he who you worship in ignorance, but they, they had this religious superstition. So obviously, you know, the Greek pagans didn't want to miss a God or whatever. So they had this all the unknown God to cover all their bases. You know, maybe we missed one in their pantheon, <laughs> you know, but that's why he says you're very some translations say you're very religious, some say you're very superstitious. It's a religious superstitiosity. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a real word? <laughs> so and that's back to Romans chapter one, where once again God declares that everyone knows that God exists via his creation, and also they're part of that creation, therefore he made the knowledge manifest in them, and they're possessors of the truth who suppress it down and then exchange him for uh, an idol, uh, either man himself or something in creation. So they intertwine there. But Paul's laying out that because Paul wrote Romans and he's preaching there in Acts. So Paul's consistent with himself. He's also consist consistent in First Corinthians uh, chapter one, you know, all the way into chapter two, where he's laying out the contrast of God's wisdom versus the wisdom of the world. They all intertwine, all, all three of these contexts. So Paul's example there is a classicist locus there of him engaging uh, the unbelievers worldview, internally critiquing it and then declaring the Christian worldview shown that they're in the pagan idolatry and they need to repent because he says God now commands all men everywhere to repent. <laughs> and mm -hmm. if you're going to judge uh, the world by you know, the man ordained, you know, Jesus Christ, that's who he's bringing up there and whom he's going to judge the world. Mm -hmm. And um, as a point of the day, you know, uh, for that judgment. So, uh, so, so, so give a little, I'm going to give a little pushback, give a little pushback. So, um, but when you read the account of Acts in Acts chapter 17, uh, where Paul is, is preaching to the Greeks there, um, isn't it the case that he looks for some kind of neutral common ground by appealing to um, their own philosophers? Isn't that an example? Isn't that a textbook example of a classical approach where he speaks of kind of a generic theism at first and appeals to their common notions? I mean, isn't that an example of a, of a classical approach as opposed to a presuppositional approach? He brings them up to show that they already have an innate knowledge of God and they have this twistedness there. And he's, that's what's also parallel to Romans chapter one, that men suppress the truth and they'll exchange him for something idolatrous, just like him, because man's a worshiping creature. If he doesn't worship Yahweh, he'll worship anything else. Mm -hmm. still, they have their idol worship. And, you know, he calls out his own post. Even your own post have said, in him we live and move without ever being. Now we know he, you know, the Greek poet, Quoting there was talking about Zeus, uh, you know, in the ultimate of the Greek pantheon there. But it, 
um, he's saying you can't escape this religiosity and this pagan idolatry, though, because you do know the God that I'm preaching to you exists, and mm-hmm. you, know, you need to repent. Uh, but he's he's definitely laying out no commonality there because he's calling them out directly on their idolatry and then saying you need to repent to you know the true worldview, mm-hmm. um, expressing the truth and unrighteousness. You know, you have this whole community, unknown God. It's Yahweh, who's <laughs> um, not dependent upon anything. So he's declaring God's aseity. He's laying out the Christian worldview. He's not dependent upon anything uh, in creation. Everything in creation depends upon him. Everything in creation, including us, <laughs> including you. Uh, you know the Greeks. So, right. Yeah, now, so, now, out there. now, so what about doing very well? And you know, yeah. he uh, you know sees the man with the iron mask on, going, "Well, I'll just uh, I'll, I'll praise the man with the mask on." Say, "That's a very nice mask you got." No, he rips the mask off. Yeah. Now, what about the uh, the specific instance uh, where Elijah faces Elijah faces off against the prophets of, of Baal, mm-hmm. where now now. I mean, it seems to me, Matt, that Elijah is basically an ancient Old Testament version of William Lane Craig, where he's standing on the mountain and asking. Now, before we jump to any conclusions, we really need to ask ourselves, the priests of Baal and the rebellious children of Israel, are there good reasons to believe that God does exist? And are there comparably good reasons to think that God uh, doesn't exist? And so let's lay out the case and see where the evidence points. Is this idea in the story of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal, is that an example of um, a classical approach? If not, is it an example of a presuppositional approach? And if not, in order to understand it as a presuppositional approach, do we need to bring other issues of scripture to bear on that passage? Or can or can we say that that specific instance we can draw out some presuppositional principles? Well, I thought I know that before when he brought it up is you know the circle was absolutely consistent. What did Elijah do with him after that? He slaughtered him. So, yeah, I is not consistent with that. Plus, he's not doing what the thing Elijah did um, anyway. Uh, the same ontological scale, but um, uh, yeah, appeal to that. I don't feel it's very very fruitful because there's mm-hmm. so many there but um i'd say given the whole uh totus scriptura and and with the view of totus scriptura and sola scriptura the, the scriptures already lays uh with you know it's going to lay this out in proverbs to uh answer the fool according or don't answer a fool according to his folly lest you be like him but then answer a fool according to his folly lest you be wise in his own conceit so there's obviously a uh just the internal critique going on there uh, standing yeah. your own ground, but then saying, okay, well, let's grant the other side for sake of argument. Let's see where it leads by implication. Um, and with the plethora of everything laid out in the New Testament, especially the way Paul engaged uh, the Greeks, was he doing what Elijah did? No. Um, once again, he is to slaughter the people after he uh, laid out his apologetic. Um, <laughs> but, but real quick, real quick, just to put, give some pushback. He mm-hmm. may have slaughtered them, but and I think the classical apologist who looks at this story admits, yeah, they were slaughtered. However, he did lay out a test. And so let's see where the evidence goes. Um, so even though they were slaughtered, isn't this still an example of say, hey, let's see where the evidence leads, which seems to be a kind of, you know, language of the classicalist, right? Mm-hmm. 
Well, you can we lay out a whole bunch of things, even Isaiah, the trial of the false gods. How we know the true God from the false gods. The true God tells us, not only tells us the future, but also the past and why it happened. Mm-hmm. 40 through 48. So uh, there's multiple lines we can use throughout Scripture. It's just which one is um, showing systematic cogency uh, on the argumentative level, because obviously Paul's not performing miracles before these people mm-hmm. in Athens. <laughs> He's saying, Calling you out on your idolatry, uh, he's got done preaching to the Jews there. And now he's stoked by the by the pagans uh, with their idolatry. He has the inclination to preach to them. He's brought before the Areopagus, you know, and there he's being mocked and everything like that. They call him a seed picker, you know, which was mm-hmm. like Pharaoh fed out of the stream, you know. These guys were all, hey, we want to hear some new thing, you know, um, and they actually mistake him for, you know. Uh, teaching uh, different gods because he allowed Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, he's talking one the same thing there. Uh, you, know, you see how they, they already got this twist in this anyway in, in their uh, in their theology, you know, how they're even interpreting what he's laying out. But even though some believe that, but not all of them, but some said, you know, it, yeah, he was being mocked uh, by a lot of people. Some said, well, we'll maybe hear about you another day. And then you mm-hmm. had believers there probably, yeah. In regards to the story of Elijah, I what I see in that story is a clear example of a presuppositional approach in terms of uh, internal worldview critique. Let's assume that your God exists. Call him down. Go ahead, call him down. Yeah. <laughs> now, well, now let's assume. I, <laughs> I'm sorry. Is he on the toilet? You know. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. And when he said, "Is he on the toilet?" Mm-hmm. Notice the language. Is he on the toilet? He's hypothetically granting the existence of this pagan god. <laughs> and yeah. see, he's What's not coming. What's your for you? What's your worldview getting you? you know, That's right. Occasions go. So, I understand. Yeah. yeah, I can understand the implications of that, too. But, yeah. Uh, holistically, you know, there's definitely principles to be derived there to have uh, effect on, on, on our uh, layout of things, too. We go, oh, yeah, I can see aspects there, but. Holistically, yeah, I just don't see Paul employing that one though. But right. it's an interesting Old Testament example, of course. But yeah. And then they were judged. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, second question. Same person. I think tag, the transcendental argument, as I usually see it formulated, is logically invalid. The versions I have seen start with something like God is the only possible source for morality, logic, etc. But the conclusion of God's existence is baked into that first premise, making this argument circular. Is there a logically valid version of the argument that non-presuppositionalists could use? (laughs) There's so much wrong with that question. Uh, But, I mean, it's coming from a place of, yeah, if that's his question. I mean, one of the knee-jerk reactions when someone hears of the transcendental argument is like, wait a minute, well, that's circular. You can't assume God uh, in, in order to prove God. Um, why, why, when someone goes up to a presuppositional and say, a presuppositionalist and says, you're engaging in circular reasoning, why, when someone um, asserts that, the presuppositionalist shrugs his shoulder and says, and? <laughs> and yeah. I, and I, I would say end, because I don't think that all circles are fallacious. So why don't you explain that for us? Yeah, well, we say, and you are too. It depends on what circle you're standing in, the one that implodes upon itself or not. So, what, do you mean, what do you mean, Matt, that everyone is standing on a circle? Right. Well, we're talking about what I laid out before, when I talked about, you know, maybe you have someone's layout. Well, I got this foundational belief, this foundational belief, this foundational belief, you know, say four foundational beliefs, whatever they want to assert, uniform mm-hmm. in nature, 
I like using logic. I like learning things. I believe it's actually morally indignant for this person to go to war against this other country. Whatever. Yeah, they'll be morally indignant about it. Or torture of animals or something like that. Yeah. Sure. For puppies. They'll have to stand up on something. Okay, so you got these basic foundational beliefs. Human dignity, value, or something like that, maybe. You know, they'll assert. So, okay, so you got these bricks. What unifies the bricks? So that's going to be your location of ultimacy, the ultimate gravity for unity, which they'll put a big question mark. But still, that is the grounds from which they're arguing from. They just don't put a a, a label on it or it maybe it can't be known. But ultimately, there has to be a base of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got the infinite regress. Uh, so if you have, well, once again, if someone's arguing for the truth and say, I got the truth. Well, that would be the starting point in order for the truth or falsity of anything that you're going to experience that you want to put a claim on. So how would I prove the truth to you? I got to assume the truth in order to prove and demonstrate that it is the only truth. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how someone can actually refute that because you're trying to say, well, how can I falsify the truth? Well, someone's actually laying out the true worldview to you, then it would be insurmountable. But once again, all philosophies are uh, circular in that fashion because they're going to appeal to that location ultimately, whether they claim it or not. They believe it exists, and they make the mere formal claim that there is absolute truth. Maybe no one can know for sure, don't know what it is, but there has to be it. Otherwise, you know, why are we even debating? In reference of non-grounding? Like, what, right, right, right. So, so, so basically, the starting point, the methodology, and any conclusions reached are ultimately going to be reciprocal right. in that fashion there. Because it's always being employed, even in the methodology. Yeah. So, so granted right from the very start but if that's the truth then there's no problem with that i like yeah. using the analogy of like you know on an empirical ground just saying well could you study the eye the eyeball without using the eye even while studying the eyeball you're using the eye you know Mm-hmm. So, so basically, the reason why presuppositionalists don't have a problem with the circular nature of the argument is that one, not all circulars are, not all circles are fallacious. When you're dealing with ultimate issues, then those are ultimate. You don't demonstrate an ultimate by appealing to something more foundational than it to validate yeah. it. Yeah, let me um, add clear distinctions there because we're not arguing on the same plane of ontology because we're appealing to God as the ontological creator, the creator creature distinction or creator creation distinction. Christian Christian worldview, there's a dualistic metaphysic there. God, mm-hmm. uh, which is totally assé. Uh, he has uh, total, uh, he's not dependent upon anything for his existence. He's self-existent. The creation is, is dependent upon him. That's the, the realm of uh, contingent experience, especially from our mm-hmm. vantage the creator-creature distinction can't be conflated and melded into one as if we're arguing on the same plane. Now, the human on the human level, are they ultimately arguing in a circle viciously on that level? Sure. But the Christian has the, the broader context uh, to where he's not engaged in that vicious circular reasoning. When we call it virtuous, we're saying that this reasoning actually, you know, the philosophy and theology saves reasoning. Mm-hmm. Van Til's like, call it whatever you want. This saves reasoning. It saves your philosophy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's when he's talking about salvation, he's saying this saves philosophy. Yeah. As absent this, you're you're dead. You're you're dead. Your philosophy is right. dead. Yeah. Next question, and I think this question again, these these types of questions. I'm glad the person is asking this question because this is just based on a fundamental misunderstanding of presuppositional apologetics. And this is not to, you know, to talk down to the person who asked the question. These are good questions because Absolutely. they allow they allow yeah. opportunities to clarify.
Mm-hmm. So here's the question. Is there something wrong with giving someone evidence? <laughs> okay. Is there something wrong with giving the historical case for the resurrection or the teleological argument? I mean, the arguments work. They're sound, right? This is what the person's asking. So basically, is there anything wrong with giving teleological, cosmological, historical arguments to defend the Christian faith? Is there anything wrong with that? I'd say absent of a transcendental framework, if you're not dealing with a worldview apologetic and you just use it as an isolation from it, they're poked full of holes. He has been poked full of holes in all, all three of the classical main arguments, like ontological, cosmological, and uh, things like that. So, uh, because it's arguing from something within creation or from man's finitude to ultimately God. Got all these hurdles to get over. Plus, they can just they can stop arbitrarily at some point anyway. They can stop at a naturalist, pantheistic God. Yeah, if you start within that, because they go, well, if you guys say everything that exists has a cause, or everything begins to exist has a cause, and you just say, well, God didn't have a beginning, well, I can just say the universe didn't have a beginning, you know, and they'll just, you know, they'll stake their claim, like, right there, and they're not going to budge, because they go, but you stopped at some point, so I got to stop at some point, I could be as arbitrary as you, mm-hmm. you're, just, you're not starting from the location of, ultimacy, re, location of ultimacy and reasoning down from him, you're starting with something that he grounds and arguing to him. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's just in reverse. And when you do that sort of thing, the uh, unbeliever can stop you at any point. Just go, well, I can just you know put this full of logical fallacies here that you're making because you're not putting it. You can put those arguments within a transcendental framework. They make sense because uh, it undergirds it from those uh, logical jumps and stuff like that. Because we're not talking about um, just causation absent from God, or just say, well, causation, therefore God, we're saying God, therefore the intelligibility of causation. Those mm-hmm. are not arguments. Right, right. So so the Christian worldview is the necessary worldview context mm-hmm. out of which one could have knowledge about anything, a foundation for logic, a foundation for arguments, a foundation for even making sense out of cosmological arguments. Problems. So the, that's right. With each other. So, 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 so within the circle, the only reason why within the circle that is the only circle that can make knowledge intelligible, the only reason why a historical argument, ready? Mm-hmm. The only reason why a historical argument can make sense in here is because it is couched within the broader worldview framework. Right. So in that sense, within the Christian worldview, I can make a historical argument. However, we do not make the historical argument pulling it out of its Christian worldview context mm-hmm. because we believe the Christian worldview context is the only context that can ground knowledge. So if that's true, then how can we tear historical arguments independent of that system and talk about it over here where there is no context out of which it can make sense? Yeah, why pull one ingredient out of the entire enchilada? Just throw the whole enchilada out. Yep, yep. Okay, that's that's good stuff. So, so there, the yeah, viewpoint. Even on a historical grounds, because the Christian got a completely different view of history. We've already laid out with the meta narrative too. There's a difference between talking about the history of philosophy and the philosophy of history. Those aren't the same terms either. So one has a view of history from their philosophical perspective, which is going to be contrary to another person's viewpoint as well. So we're going to be interpreting even history itself differently. Right. And the standards right. that and scholarship and stuff like that. Yeah. Sure. Right. Yeah. Very good. Um, okay. Um, so, so basically the person who asked this question, no, there is no problem or there's nothing wrong with giving evidence. We just do not give evidence 
in a way that is isolated from a broader worldview context. Mm-hmm. We don't speak as a, we don't speak about specific things over here like evidence as though the worldview context around it doesn't yeah. exist. Why well, you know, throw, throw the entire house at them? You know, we're just saying lay out the whole house. Right. Say, got this brick here, this brick here. Look how look how fancy those bricks are. Put it within the whole scheme of the house. Right. We got laid out on our side of the page. We're saying we got the whole house built. Okay. At least at a foundational level mm-hmm. there. Okay. We've got some things that go beyond our understanding. The secret things belong to the Lord our God around the planet. So I'd say we got all the answers, but at a foundational level, we got the answers. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, here's his last question Do you believe there are actual atheists? I do. I think they're telling the truth when they say, I believe there is no God. How would you respond to that from a presuppositional perspective? I think it's coming from the heart mm-hmm. that many presuppositionalists say, we don't believe in atheists because the Bible teaches that all men know God exists. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of the background um, out of which this person's asking the questions. How would you answer that? Right. What you're saying is they're operating within that, op- in that transcendental framework, once again, the Christian worldview, and they're created as image bearers of God ontologically from from their conception okay uh and once again the human has been developed and learned and stuff like that but these things are already antecedent as precursors for even the learning capacity because they're just stimulus response mechanisms and children defy behaviorism <laughs> they do uh remember boss using an illustration of like well you know even with my son too when you start your with your kids you start pointing at things and say you know ball bottle so how do you know that pointing means you're talking about the object in the language of the term you're actually speaking to? You didn't teach him that via behaviorism. He just knows it intuitively, you know? <laughs> so mm-hmm. there's a good reputation of behaviorism there. Children are just a good example of that. Then Chauncey actually brought that up too. Um, but within that framework, we're saying there are no true atheists because they're on the operational grounds of the Christian worldview, which asserts that man is created in the image of God. He's ethically obligated to bear that image. He's going to think God's thoughts after him. He can't avoid wanting to think rationally, um, you know, uh, in certain contexts and stuff like that, but he's going to be self-contradictory, uh, you know, in his philosophy that he wants to lay out mm-hmm. because we suppress the knowledge of Yahweh and then assert your you know, exchange him for something else. What does Romans 1 say? They're professing, professing themselves to be wise and become fools. They, they become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts are darkened. So what they want to assert as wisdom of the world, which Paul says, world through its own wisdom did not come to know God. So I think that's First Corinthians one twenty one. That's just right there. Paul's laying out a refutation of natural theology that man on his own and Thomas Browns concludes God exists. Said the world through its own wisdom did not come to know God. Right. God made it manifest in them. Romans chapter one. Um, now the far depth of that suppression, of course, is going to self deceive the unbeliever to. You know, once again, that's a secondary belief over his primary belief that then he self-deceives himself. It's not a logical contradiction because Boston wrote his doctoral dissertation on that, laying it out, the apparent paradox of self-deception. They think it's a contradiction. How do you be the deceiver and also the deceived? Mm-hmm. Well, one's a primary belief and there was a secondary one that takes primacy over and then, you know, just clouds your, your judgment over, no, oh, no, I, I don't really believe that innately. Um, even though the Bible you know, uh, Hebrews 4.12 lays out, Romans chapter 1 itself. Uh, yeah. spirit, uh, the scriptures tell us about our, our true ontological state, even though we'll deny it, you know, right. some bitter death. They, they will deny it. Yeah. 
heart of hearts with the guy. I, I think I think in a very simple way, when you ask the question, do you believe there are actual atheists? I do. Well, it's not an issue. Do I believe they're actual atheists? If this person's a Christian, what does the Bible say? <laughs> well, does the Bible teach that there that there are atheists? Uh, yeah. I don't. I don't think it does. <laughs> yeah, I think in Ephesians chapter two, the term atheos is used is used there, uh, mm-hmm. but it's without God. And um, I've heard uh, interpretation. Uh, I think it was by Greg Bonson. He didn't really ferret it out, so I'd have to investigate it further. But it actually means abandoned by God. Mm. Mm world um and well isn't isn't there in romans one and i apologize for cutting in there Mm -hmm. isn't in romans one where it says and uh knowing god they did not glorify god isn't the greek there nontes ton theon knowing the god which actually which makes it more specific as to the god that they know not just a generic theism uh yeah it's definitely an article there genontos knowing present active participle knowing the god so this Mm. speaking about now, he's not laying out that they have knowledge of the Trinity. Or- All right, stop right there. I want to stop right there because that was my last question, and I think this is very key. And I, in my in my discussions with people, I've had discussions with um, some pretty solid classical apologists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I could just name drop. I've had some good discussions with Braxton Hunter over at Trinity Radio, um, Mike Winger. Um, yeah. he, he's going to be debating a presuppositional guy. He's a great guy, and he really – um, really yeah. just wants to understand the precept method um, yeah. as he as from his position, he wants to critique it, which is fine. Um, yeah. You know, but a question that he asked, and I think is a good question. When the presuppositionalist says that all men know God, what is the nature of this knowledge? Does that mean when we say all men know God, that he knows the Trinity, that he knows the Bible's the word of God? that he knows, you know, more specific things? What is the nature of the knowledge? Mm-hmm. I'd say the sins that they're guilty for, they're what? Not glorify him as God, nor being thankful for what they have, because everything they have ontologically, metaphysically in that respect, all the gifts they have from God, they use them and abuse them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not given right, proper respect, because what they're doing, you've got the suppression of the truth, there and also the exchanging of him so it's not i didn't get this from yahweh i didn't get my capabilities and abilities from yahweh my talents and uh, things like that um especially in wanting to be a rational thinker you know even that and we should <laughs> i remember boston bringing it up we should give the glory to god that we can learn things and mm-hmm. uh, want to study things and, and, and stuff like that you know we should give glory to god for that but we go Whoa, this came from the evolutionary framework. And ultimately, you know, we could ferret out that worldview wherever they want to serve from. And I don't want to trauma them or to say to strict naturalism. Well, the uh, periodic table of the element soup somehow just be able to learn at some point, you know. So they got to ferret out from point one to point 50,000 if they actually want to lay out systematically. I really wait for them to do that, but they got jumps and leaps and gaps from one point to another. Well, we really haven't ferreted this out yet. So they're using their intellectual capabilities to suppress the knowledge of God. It's a willful suppression because God says they're without excuse. They, they don't have a defense uh, against him. And it's a willful suppression because it's something that they, they do while knowing the God. Uh, so I, I'd say it's on operational grounds, not necessarily on a special revelation grounds, because Paul's laying out general revelation here. He's saying, apart from the Bible, men know that God exists. Now, he's just reiterating what we already know innately, because he's going to the very 
ontological nature of man uh, and also the operational uh, framework by which God has made him in the Imago Dei. Uh, Genesis 1 26, man is ethically obligated to bear God's image. When we don't do that, we're sinning. <laughs> okay. Right. But he's supposed to be imaging him. When you don't do that, we're sinning and we're engaging in suppressing the truth. We're not living consistently with our uh, ontological uh, nature as prescribed right. by God. And now we're in that simple condition and we need we need a savior because Paul's laying out the bad news in, in Romans. He lays out one, two, half of three bad news before he gets to the gospel and he has to lay it out. Right, right. God. So now I I lied. That was not the last question. I have another question. That's fine. <laughs> I have a couple of questions. I have a couple of questions. Uh, um, okay. What's the difference between presuppositional apologetics and the transcendental argument? Some people seem to think that they are either one and the same or they're not necessarily the same. So like uh, someone will say, well, I'm not a Calvinist. I know all you presuppers mostly are reformed. You know, someone like Cornelius Van Til, he was, you know, he had a tattoo of, Van, of Calvin right on his chest. And he didn't really actually, um, uh, you know, uh, Greg Bonson was a Calvinist. So presuppositional apologetics is usually associated with reform coming out of a reform perspective. And it usually manifests itself in the form of a transcendental argument. So, What's the difference between presup apologetics and tag? And can a non-reformed person be presuppositional? And can a non-reformed person use the transcendental argument? Okay. Sorry I, if that was a hard. That's a hard one because you don't care for any of these. I, I thought about it and taking notes on and reflected upon because I thought, well, presuppositions are trans, transcendental in nature. They're transcendental in character. Now, okay. Uh, maybe I should have laid out the definition earlier. Uh, you know, my Hokie analogy, because I will use a Hokie analogy for Bonson like too, and I kind of leaned upon him to create my own. Um, oh, well, actually, Michael Butler brought this one up, so it's uh, one that well, it's stuck in my brain. So, nature of transcendental is a precursor for something. If you took away the precursor, you don't have the thing following its consequence. So, like a very narrow transcendental would be the concept of, or, or a very narrow example would be, you know, Eli, you like to play games, video games, board games, any sort of game, game, like chess, checkers, backgammon, Call of Duty, Star Wars games or something like that. Well, if you took away the concept of game, you wouldn't have any particular game. It's trans, it's transcendental, it's antecedent to any particular game. But if you took that concept away, you wouldn't have any game in particular. Mm-hmm. That's a very narrow sense of a transcendental. Now let's go more broad in scope. So that was real, like close to the bullseye for the illustration. Now let's go the biggest ring outside the bullseye here. Otherwise, the bullseye doesn't make sense. Took away causality. You don't have even the concept of game. You don't have any particular game. So one's more narrow in scope. One's more broad in scope. Now we got two different types of transcendentals here. Okay, so we got plurality of transcendentals. Now what is the transcendental that grounds all transcendentals? These things need accounting for. One's a precondition more fundamental than these other things. They're more uh, systematically fundamental with the web of beliefs. You know, think of like a spider web coming out of a corner. You know, we're talking about that corner is a starting point there, and everything else spurns off from that in a web. If you took that away, the whole web falls. Mm. Systematically related, systematically fundamental. But we're not foundationalists. We're just talking about it from a transcendental starting point because we're not talking about um, one thing in isolation from all other things. We're talking about a system, a whole worldview system. Now, obviously, the ontological 
God is triune in nature. So we can account for the one to many issue, which we can dive into, mm-hmm. which a lot of people don't really bring up a lot, but that's what Van Til really wanted to ferret out. Um, and other people have really taken the reins. And, you know, so, 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 so if someone says, I don't like presuppositional apologetics, but I think that the tag argument is pretty cool. Yeah. Can someone take the tag out of the presuppositional apologetics category and use it? Well, we can lay out like, you know, yeah, the atheist lay out there are multiple what we call presuppositions or they label them as properly basic belief. We can say, well, those are your presuppositions, but they haven't gone to the ultimate. So you can have someone engage or laying out presuppositions, a plurality. But when you're getting to the unity there, we're talking about the one, the many. So that's why the Trinity is important here. Because you can, I, I've engaged multiple atheists to say, well, I believe uniformity nature, I believe logic exists, and I believe it's immoral for what you Christians do or whatever. They'll be morally indignant against Christians. So let's just say we grant that. They're morally indignant. They at least firm something uh, that can be nailed down, you know, at least uh, not waver on. Um, so I go, okay, so you got this plurality. What unifies them? It's all that God being one. So what is that? What is that? That one that actually is the ground of all being, the location of ultimacy, the transcendental ultimate. And we still say God's a presupposition, but he's transcendental in character, uh, not just mm-hmm. transcendence, that he transcends all space and time. We're saying as a precursor, a precondition, as you laid out before, uh, if you took him away, you wouldn't have anything else. We're just saying he's an ontological uh, transcendental necessity. And that's the whole purpose of the location of ultimate argument. It's an overarching argument to saying this is the ultimate thing you gotta you gotta grasp. So, so we're laying out that holistically from the Christian worldview. If one wants to come up to our level there of argumentation, say, okay, I can refute you guys internally, and then here's my ground, and here's how I have some smack cogency. I want to see that worldview laid out on the other side of the page. So to lay out just by basic terminology of just a presupposition, you could just argue from presuppositions. But you're not having any unity there unless you're saying I'm going to employ their presupp- their transcendental in character. Since you have a plurality of transcendentals, you're not grounding them in the transcendental ultimate. Though. So you still mm-hmm. got a, a disjuncted plurality without any unity, which makes no sense. So there's no rationality there. So if you want to affirm there is one in many, then they have to ground the one. That's where you're right. getting ultimate tag. That's how I would distinguish between you can just argue presuppositions inconsistently and just say i got a plurality of presuppositions you got a plurality of presuppositions we never get anywhere unless you want to you know ground and say there's uh, a unity to this diversity now we got the overarching tag aside from mm-hmm. just just strict you know quote unquote presuppositions plural okay. even though the ultimate tag would be presuppositional in character because he's also presuppositional uh or it's a presupposition but he's also transcendent it's also transcendental in character Mm-hmm. So it just so, needs to be on, on paper a little bit more. You can see the distinguishing there because we say we're uh, presuppositional transcendentalists or transcendental presuppositionalists. Either way you want to flip the term, you're employing transcendental necessity to the presuppositions. Yeah, that's what we're saying. So in a very basic way, if and this, that was the, an answer. I, I'm glad you unfolded it, but let's let's make it even more simpler. So you have you have. 15 seconds, ready? I'm not a presuppositional apologist, but I, I, I like to use the transcendental argument that you guys use. <laughs> is that good? What would, you, what would you respond in 20 seconds? How would you why, say? Why does he like it? 
Well, because I think it, I think it has, it has a practical use to it. You know, I can use it. I think it, it has a, it has a strength to it. I just don't. Your presuppositional apologetics is not equivalent to the tag argument, right? <laughs> Hypothetical yeah. person. <laughs> yeah. Employ the tag. They're they're transcendentalists. So yeah, because um, we're arguing from the location of ultimacy, the ultimate transcendental, engaging in presuppositions that people have engaged in their presuppositions about their presuppositions about the nature of reality and knowledge and how you should live, you know, your lives. And we do it in from, from that viewpoint. So um, that's the whole purpose of laying out two sides of the page, laying out their presuppositions. So you got the plurality there. You got your metaphysic, epistemology, ethics. You know, that's a plurality. Mm-hmm. There's three categories there, but what unifies the three categories? We're saying the ontological trinity does. You know, it's imagine the uh, circle, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, total equality, you know, representing the ontological trinity there. And then um, branching off from that, you got three philosophical categories, and that meta narrative from his uh, creation, you know, and the creator creation distinction there already laid out our dualistic uh, metaphysical framework. So we're laying out our side of the page. Then the other side is going, well, I got these things in these categories, but I have no unity uh, between them. I can't harmonize them. They believe there are relationships there, but they have to even ground what a relationship is, what a conceptual relationship is. Um, these are things that are not verified by empirical standards as, at all, but they're that by which they want to employ even in empirical investigation. Uh, right. I mean, radically disjunctive things. Otherwise, I'd just say you have just chaos and old night. Right. Okay, so h- how about this? All right, Matt, I'm not a Calvinist man. I am an Arminian or I am a traditionalist. You know, maybe I'm Leighton Flowers or something. Maybe Leighton Flowers. He's sub- he's actually subscribed to the podcast, so he'll probably hear this, but cool. not, not taking pot shots at, at, at Dr. Flowers. Um, but um, say, you're, say you're not a Calvinist. Yeah. Can a non-Calvinist be, in any consistent way, a presupp- can, can that person use presuppositional apologetics consistently? I wouldn't say consistently because they'd have to jump ship on one's press on theological grounds. Uh, uh, I think what Van Til and Bonson were dealing with there was a consistently biblically derived apologetic to say this is derived from Scripture and the whole worldview system that Scripture lays out. Mm-hmm. It's our metaphysic, how we know what we know and how we should live holistically uh, so you know issues of god's sovereignty uh the creator creature distinction free will and stuff like that are going, going to get into that as well as dependent on how, how you preach the gospel to someone uh so it has that once again the the, the purpose of apologetics i think is, it has to be emphasized because i had to learn this too it's something i always got to keep uh bringing back up in my mind because sometimes we get into this intellectual rigor in uh, intellectual fisticuffs, we forget about the overarching umbrella, which is the evangelistic context. So apologetics is always a subdivision within evangelism. So mm. evangelism has to be first and foremost. The subdivision within that is to engage in apologetics. Not right, apologetics. That's so important. Yeah. And I had to definitely flip on that uh, many times uh, where you lose sight of it. And you got to keep going up. Ah, I got to check myself. Got to think evangelism. First and foremost, the whole time I'm engaging in apologetics. That's the overarching umbrella by which apologetics should be uh, be employed. So I, I want to make that too because it's something I got to call myself out on multiple mm-hmm. times. Yeah, and multiple we can get people. so wrapped up. We can get so wrapped up and so focused upon that. It's like, oh man, I didn't even bring up the gospel to them. Right. I mean, they know what perspective I'm coming from, but they need to hear that gospel. I need to hear that gospel preached too. Mm-hmm. 
you know um and we kind of lose sight of that just you know i could debate philosophy with someone for one or two hours something like that and i went oh stop and, you've but, done it you've done it for four hours i've listened to it and yeah. died. <laughs> So, yeah. He's trying to be like, modest. Oh, I could go for two hours. No, yeah. I've listened to you yeah. for four and a half but hours. Go with somebody. I mean, lesson because you self-reflect upon that. I'm like, well, man, okay, answer that point, answer that point. But man, I could have brought the gospel right there. You know, right. that was like he right there. So it's right. trying to pick up on that, not lose sight of that, uh, which will only be called out upon too because we're all mm-hmm. easy to do um, because we you're trying to deal with a whole bunch of stuff in your head and stuff like that. Um, well, if he brings up this, what well, he brings up that, but we'll be, you know, focus upon evangelism, the answer will flow forth. And that, that's another point, too. Uh, I was teaching on some apologetics uh, to some newcomers to the CARM server on, on Discord. Guy was coming for, he teach me philosophical apologetics. I go, no, we'll teach you theological apologetics um, because philosophy, once again, is, uh, oh my God. Uh, so we're going to put it within that, that framework. And um, I had to bring it up to him that, you know, Make that a subdivision. Apologetics is a subset of evangelism. We got to be gospel oriented first, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. first and foremost, and can't lose yeah. sight of it. Otherwise, you know, you go Hayward on there um, and lose the ultimate uh, scope of things. So. Yeah. Now, I guarantee for the people who are listening to this, they are going to find this conversation immensely helpful. Now, we're going to end here only because I don't want the video to be too long because then I'm going to have trouble. Uh, okay. um, you know, like how it, how it kind of downloads and shit takes forever if it's like two hours mm-hmm. long or whatever. But um, I'm going to uh, I'm going to manipulate manipulate you now and in in public for everyone listening. You're coming back and we're discussing another issue. You're going to say, yes, Eli, we're going to do this again. Let's do this. Right. OK. Eli. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So here's the next topic we're going to talk about in some time in the future, whenever you want to. And I know that a lot of people would be interested in this. Ready? The truth. For the proof of the of the the truth of the Christian worldview is that without if if it were not true, you couldn't prove anything at all. People say, well, that's great. How do you know that it's the Christian God specifically that grounds all of these things? And Mr. Presupper, you don't prove your point by merely disproving someone else's viewpoint. You hear this stuff all the time. So next time, maybe we can talk about specifically. The transcendental argument and why it demonstrates the triune God and not the God of Islam, not the the fake Christian uh, God or the a, a God that is perhaps a a quadrinity as opposed to a trinity or something like that. So uh, would you be willing to talk about that and we can get into issues of the one and the many? And um, I think people would really find that super fascinating. Yep. And that's going to be a hint there. That's the one that slices through the majority of the world is. Yeah. Perfect, man. Well, thank you so much, bro. I love to guys just to let you know, Matt Yester has helped me in my own personal uh, studies. I've listened to and digested so much of Greg Bonson that I I lost count how many things that I've listened to. But Matt has actually helped me fill the gaps in my understanding as to what I learned from Bonson. And he's been able to explain some issues that I, you know, that I missed when I did those studies. And so I've really appreciated his insight. Um, he's always letting me know when a debate is going down. So I'm always, you know, I'll be sitting around like, man, I need to listen to something. I'll get a text and dude, this is going down on, on modern day debates or something like that, you know. Um, and so I do appreciate your friendship. I appreciate your um, your insights. And um, and I'm looking forward to doing this again, man. Sounds like fun, man. Sounds cool. Uh, 
Thank you very much for listening to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. Uh, if you have any questions um, that you would like me to cover in a podcast episode, uh, please email them to me to revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Also, we very much um, appreciate your prayers, and if you wish to support Revealed Apologetics financially, uh, you can by doing so. Um, we have a, a PayPal account set up. Uh, you can um, uh, help us out financially um, at paypal.me slash revealedapologetics, paypal.me slash revealedapologetics, and that would be uh, greatly appreciated if, if you were able to help out financially. If not, um, we, we definitely would appreciate uh, prayer. Um, and um, once again, if, if you have any questions uh, that you'd like me to cover, revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and God bless.